Several weeks ago, Brenda and I were uh, going away for our 25th wedding anniversary, and as we were sitting in the airport getting ready to get on the plane, there was a businessman sitting next to us, and he was talking on the telephone. I couldn't help but overhear his conversation. He was sitting right next to me. And he was talking to this other person on the phone, and they were, they were discussing a third party, some unnamed third party, that this uh, person on the phone was thinking about entering into a business relationship with. And the businessman sitting next to me said to his friend on the phone, he said, you need to be real careful about getting hooked up in a deal with this guy. Why, he said, because he cheats at golf, that's why. And later on, as we were drive flying, I said to Brenda, I'd been thinking about this. I couldn't get it out of my mind. And I turned to Brenda and I said, isn't this interesting? Isn't that interesting that here's a, a person of the world, a secular businessman, who's talking on the telephone, and, and we heard him say that he believes you can, tell, you can judge the level of a person's character by judging the level of their honor on the golf course. Now, friends, I've lived for 50 years, and I've learned that this businessman is right. I've come to believe it's all about honor. I've come to believe that honor is the quintessential ingredient in living a life that is godly and successful and satisfying. And this is what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about being men and women of honor as followers of Jesus Christ, because we're going to look at the life of a man today in the Bible who I think is a marvelous example of this truth in action. So I want you to take a Bible. Let's open it together to 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you didn't bring a Bible today, we have a copy of the Bible you can borrow right on the back of the seat in front of you. We're going to be on page 221 of our copy of the Bible, page 221 in our copy, or 2 Samuel 11 in your copy. And while you're turning, let me give you a little bit of background. Uh, it's springtime. David has sent the army of Israel off to war, but he stayed home in Jerusalem. And one night, he's up on his rooftop. He saw a woman bathing, a beautiful woman, on a neighboring rooftop. He called her over. Her name was Bathsheba. He, he slept with her, sent her home, figured that was the end of it, until a few weeks later she gets in touch with him and says, Oh, by the way, I'm pregnant. And all of a sudden, David has an enormous crisis on his hands. Uriah, her husband, has been away with the army of Israel. He's a soldier. He's been away fighting for months. And if she goes ahead and has this baby like this, it's not going to take a rocket scientist to figure out Uriah is not the father. And people are going to trace this to David. So what does David do? Well, what he could have done is he could have voluntarily gone public with his moral failure. He could have confessed his sin openly to the Lord, throwing himself on God for mercy and cleansing. He could have confessed his sin openly to his people humbling himself in front of them and asking for their forgiveness and continued support. And in fact, the truth is, this is exactly what he should have done. What he should have done. Proverbs 28, verse 13 says this, He who conceals his wrongdoing will not prosper, but whoever confesses it and renounces it will find mercy. Friends, may I say to you that if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ in a real and personal way, that if you want to find mercy with God, let me tell you how do you do it. You don't do it by working hard, trying to keep the Ten Commandments, trying to be the best person you can, trying to impress God with your goodness and your righteousness. That won't find you any mercy. The way you do it is just what Proverbs says. We humble ourselves, we confess our wrongdoing and before God, and we renounce it, and we ask God for mercy, and we get it. It's a simple system. This is what coming to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is all about. 
It's all about coming to God helpless and casting ourselves on Him for mercy. And God says, when you do that, you'll always find it. That's what David should have done. He would have found mercy. But as we all know, this is not our normal human tendency. doesn't matter whether you're an adult or a young person, whether you're a believer in Jesus Christ or you're not. doesn't make any difference. We all know that every one of us has the same natural tendency to try to conceal our wrongdoing, dust our trail, and weasel our way through without ever having to fess up. That's the way we all are. And that was the path that David chose here, as we're going to see. And he took a bad situation, friends, and he made it 50 times worse. Look at this. Verse 6. So David, he comes up with a, with a very clever plan to try to dust his trail. David sent word to his general, Joab, and he said to him, Send me Uriah the Hittite. Now, this is Bathsheba's husband. And so Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. David's ostensible purpose in bringing Uriah back was to find out how the battle was going. But that wasn't his real purpose. That wasn't his real motive. And then David said, look, verse 8, to Uriah, Okay, Uriah, thanks for bringing that report. Now go to your house and wash your feet and spend the night with your wife and have a home-cooked meal and enjoy an evening with you, you know, at home together with your, with your wife. And, and so Uriah left, David thinking that's where he was going, and David even sent a gift. A special gift. Maybe some flowers or a bottle of wine David sent. Now, you see, David's real purpose was to get Uriah to go home and spend the night with his wife. If that happens, then when Bathsheba has the baby, everybody traces the baby back to that night that Uriah came home and spent with her, and nobody thinks any more of it, and David's off the hook. You understand? It's a very clever plan. The problem is... It didn't work exactly the way David expected it to. Look at verse 9. But Uriah went and slept at the entrance to the palace with all of his master's servants and did not go down to his house. Uh, Uriah went out and slept on the ground in front of the palace. And when David found out about it, verse 10, he called Uriah in and he said, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? He said, What's wrong with you, man? Oh, are you crazy? You've been sleeping out on the dirt, sleeping in the mud. You haven't taken a bath in weeks. You've been having people shoot arrows at you and try to kill you. Now you get a chance to come home, get a warm home-cooked meal, go home and get cozy with your wife. Are you crazy? What's wrong with you? Why didn't you go home? Look what Uriah says. He says, Your Majesty, verse 11, The Ark of Israel and the men of Judah are staying in tents, and my master general Joab, and all my Lord's men, all my, my squad members are all camped out in the mud in the open fields. How can I go home to my house and eat and drink with my wife and lie with her when my comrades don't get that opportunity? As surely as you live, O king, I will not do such a thing. I'm sure David bowed his head and went, oh my goodness, I'm, I got a boy scout on my hands here. What am I going to do? Well, David wasn't done yet. He goes to plan B. David's got plan B. Look what he does. He says to him, okay, okay, stay here one more day, verse 12, and, and, and then I'll send you back tomorrow. And so verse 13, at David's invitation that night, Uriah ate and drank with David at dinner, and David got him drunk. David figured, well, if I get him drunk, for sure he'll go home to his wife then. But what happened? Well, it says in the evening Uriah went out and slept on his mat among his master's servants just the way he did before. 
he did not go home. Well, now David really starts to panic. Now he starts to feel like a trapped animal. And he embarks now on a plan that is almost hard to believe when you hear about it, that David would do this. Listen to what happened. Verse 14, And in the morning, David wrote a letter to General Joab, and he sent it back to the front with Uriah. He said to Uriah, Here, take this letter, don't open it, give this to General Joab. And in the letter, he said, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is the fiercest, and then withdraw from him suddenly, leave him out there exposed and all alone, and he will be struck down and he will die. You say, Lon, wait a minute, time out a second. Am I understanding this right? Am I understanding that the Bible is telling us David deliberately planned for Uriah to be killed? That David deliberately engaged in first degree premeditated murder? Is that what the Bible's saying? It's exactly what the Bible's telling you. And if you read the rest of the chapter, you'll find that Joab obeyed David's order. He put Uriah in the fiercest part of the battle. He left him there all alone and betrayed him. And Uriah died. He was killed. Verse 26, let's finish it out. And when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And at the t when the time of, of her mourning was over, David had her brought into his house. And she became his wife. And she bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now, I'd say that's the, one of the understatements of the Bible, wouldn't you? But David, as the chapter ends, David thinks he's pulled this thing off cleanly. He's gotten away with it. But you remember that old saying, folks, you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool the Lord ever. That's the old saying. And it's true. And as David's going to find out in the next chapter, we're not done with this yet. There's more to come. We'll talk about that next week. But this is the end of our passage for today, and it leads us to ask the most important question. You know what that question is. What is it? So what? Say, Lon, listen, I feel, I feel awful for Uriah. You're right, David did a despicable thing. But what difference does it make to me in the 20th century? Well, I believe that it makes a lot of difference. I believe as we look at this passage and we look at this man, Uriah, that one of the words that come to mind every time I think of this man is the word honor. Uriah was a man of honor. And, and, and I believe that this passage is a challenge to you and me as Christians in the 20th century to live up, to copy this man's example, and to try to be people of honor in our world today. And that's what I want to talk to you about. Now, what does it mean to be a person of honor? Let's define that. What is the picture? What's a person of honor look like? What's the target we're trying to hit? Well, there are four things here in this passage that Uriah displays in his life that make up what it means to be a person of honor. Let me tell you what they are. Number one... A person of honor, first of all, to be a person of honor means to be a man or woman of integrity. Uriah was a man of integrity. In fact, he had so much integrity that, think about it now, he personally carried the letter that contained his own death sentence back to the front and never even opened it. Think about that. If he'd have opened this thing and seen what was in David's letter... Can you imagine what he could have done with this? He could have blackmailed David. He could have been the prime minister of Israel. Who knows how much he could have gotten for himself if he'd have opened it. But David said to him, take this back to the front and don't open it. And the man was such a man of integrity, he took the letter carrying his own death sentence back to the front and never looked inside. Incredible. The man had integrity. 
Second of all, to be a person of honor means that you're a man or a woman, second of all, of duty. A man or a woman of duty. Remember what David said to Joab. He said, you send this man into the fiercest part of the battle where the chances of survival are almost zero. That's where I want you to send him. That's what Joab did. You know the amazing thing? Uriah went. He went. And I'm sure he knew that going into that section of the battle, wherever it may have been, that his chances of survival were very slim. But this was a man of duty. And if his general told him that's where he was going, then by golly, that's where he went. That's duty. Third of all, Uriah was a man of loyalty. A man of loyalty. Don't you think he wanted to go home and get a hot meal? Don't you think he wanted to go home and get a hot bath? Don't you think he wanted to go home after months of celibacy and have an evening with his wife? Don't you think he wanted to do that? Don't you think everything inside of his flesh was crying out to go home and do that? And the king ordered him to go home and do it, for goodness sake. But he wouldn't. And the reason was loyalty. He felt a loyalty to his squad members who were sleeping in the mud and eating K-rations. And they weren't with their wives. He felt a loyalty to the army of Israel who was out there sleeping on the ground. And they weren't with their wives. And he said, I'm sorry. As much as I may want to be with my wife tonight, I'm not going to betray the loyalty I have to my fellow soldiers. I'm not going home. He was a man of loyalty. A man who didn't turn on his friends just because the better thing came along. Fourth and finally, Uriah was a man who kept his word. And that's what a person of honor is. It's a person who keeps their word, keeps their oaths. Uriah had taken an oath as a soldier to be true to his general, true to his king, true to his God, true to his duties, true to his mission, true to his fellow soldiers. And you know what? It was keeping those oaths that cost him his life. If he'd have felt less strongly about those oaths, if he'd have been willing to break his oaths, break his word, go home and be with his wife, even open this letter and look in that letter David wrote, he'd still have been alive. But he was a man who said, when I give my word, I keep it. And I'll tell you something really interesting. Is that in Psalm 15, listen to what Psalm 15 says. It says, one of the marks of a godly person is that a godly person is a person who keeps their word, keeps their oaths, even when it hurts to do it. Now, the interesting thing is, you know who wrote that? Psalm 15, check it out. David wrote it. David said a godly person is a person who keeps their word, keeps their oath. But isn't it interesting that in this situation, the person who lived it out was not David. It was Uriah who lived it out. What does it mean to be a person of honor? It means to be a person of integrity, a person of duty, a person of loyalty, and a person who keeps their word, even if it hurts to do it. You gave your word, you keep it. You say, Lon, okay, I agree with you. Uriah was a man of honor. I agree with you. But look what it got him. Look what it got him. His wife cheated on him. His commanding general betrayed him. And his king lied to him, deceived him, manipulated him, stole his wife, and murdered him. I mean, what is this? No good deed goes unpunished? Is that what we're saying here? I mean, why should I go out as a Christian and live a life of honor if I'm going to get the short end of the stick the way Uriah got it here? I mean, you're not motivating me big time this morning to go do this based on the way Uriah turned out. Well, you ask a good question, an excellent question. If we can't answer that question, there's no reason why a single one of us here ought to go live as a person of honor. 
But I'm happy to report the Bible has a good answer for your question. The Bible gives us a biblical worldview and tells us certain truths that answer that question. And I want to tell you what they are. There's two truths the Bible tells us that make it worth living as a person of honor, even if it looks like you're getting the short end of the stick. Let me tell you what they are. Number one, the Bible tells us that God doesn't settle everybody's account down here. Friends, if what happens here on earth is the only settling of accounts that ever happens in the universe, then life is cruel, life is unfair, and there's not a single good reason for you to live as a person of honor. Because you know what? Usually, when we live as people of honor in this world, usually we end up with the short end of the stick somehow. Usually, in some situation or another, there was something we could have gotten if we'd have been a person of dishonor we missed. There's more money we could have gotten if we'd have been a person of dishonor, but we missed. There's other things that come along that if we'd have just been willing to twist it just a little bit, we could have gotten them. And frankly, we would have liked to have gotten them. But because we're a person of honor, we had to let them go. I'm happy to report to you that there is another settling of accounts that occurs after this world where God goes back and makes everything right. And anything you lose here by being a person of honor, you get back in spades on the other side. Listen to what 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, verse 10. We're going to flash it on the screen for you. Listen to what it says. It says that every one of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Talking about after we die, that each one of us may receive what is due him for the things that he did, that she did, while they were in their body here on earth, whether good or bad. And what God's telling us is, don't worry about it. If you end up with the short end of the stick here by being a person of honor, that's fine. Because there's another settling of accounts coming. And I'm going to make it all right there. So don't worry about it. Now, friends, as Christians, if we really believe that, then that's a good reason why we can live as people of honor. Because we're not looking at this world as the end all of how things end up. We understand God is on the other side and that some accounts are going to get settled on the other side. And that's okay. Which leads me to the second biblical truth, the second lens through which we need to see this whole issue. And that's this. If it's true that that we as followers of Jesus Christ are going to heaven after we die, and if it's true that God is going to settle our account righteously there in heaven, then that means, second of all, that as Christians, how well we live is far more important than how long we live. How well we live is far more important than how long we live. Listen to Proverbs 16, 18. It's better to have a little with integrity, God says, than to have much gain with ungodly behavior. Proverbs 21, 22, verse 1. A good reputation is more desirable, God says, than anything this world has to offer. And folks, it's true that all the people who acted dishonorably in this chapter live longer than Uriah. That's true. But I want you to think for a moment about the quality of those extra years that they had. Think about it. How about the quality of the extra years Bathsheba got? You know what happened? She watched her first son die as a judgment from God on her. She watched her next son, King Solomon. Oh yeah, he became king all right. But he ended his life in spiritual disgrace. He ended his life in spiritual discipline. He ended his life rejected by God. He ended his life as an embarrassment to the kingdom of God. I mean, as a mother, is this the way you want to live? Wouldn't it have been better to have not seen all of that? Who wants to live and see that happen to you children? I wouldn't call those great years she lived. 
And how about King David? He lived 20 years after Uriah died. But what kind of 20 years were they? Well, they were 20 years where his children raped each other and his children hated each other. His children couldn't speak to each other. His children murdered one another. His family was in a constant state of turmoil. He never enjoyed any peace or any harmony during those 20 years. His own son Absalom mutinied against him, ran him out of town, overthrew him as king, chased him around in the wilderness trying to kill him, his own son. Were those good years? I wouldn't call those good years, would you? You know what? I think, as you look at the three of them, Absalom got the best end of the deal. He died with honor, and the two people who lived on in dishonor lived 20 miserable years. I think Absalom got the best part of the deal. And that's why I say that as Christians, folks, it's better to die sooner with honor than it is to live longer with dishonor. As Christians, it's better to tell the truth with honor and pay whatever price that brings than to lie and try to weasel out of it with dishonor. As Christians in our world today, it's better to keep our word with honor, even if it hurts, to keep our commitments, than it is to betray our word with dishonor. As Christian students, it's better to get a D with honor than it is to cheat and get an A with dishonor. As Christians, it's better to quit your job and be unemployed with honor than it is to lie to customers and misrepresent products and forge documents just so you can keep your job with dishonor. As Christians, it's better to be authentic people where what you see is what you get with honor than it is to be a cheap flatterer who just tries to move up in the world by blowing smoke at everybody. It's better to die sooner with honor than it is to live longer with dishonor. That's how I see it. Because if we're really going to die anyway, I love what Shakespeare said in Julius Caesar. He said, and I quote, cowards die many times before their death, but the valiant only test a taste of death once. Since we're going to die anyway, all of us, why not go ahead and do it once with honor than to live on in disgrace and dishonor? You know, it seems to me that every one of us here makes decisions every day, lots of them, where the central issue is honor. We make decisions at our, at, our, at our places of work. We make decisions in our family. We make decisions in our neighborhoods. We make decisions everywhere we go where the central issue is, am I going to be a person of honor? And I'm concerned about our country. I mean, you know, uh, many of you know Kenneth Starr comes to our church. That's not, that's public knowledge. And I've gotten opportunities to do, you would not believe how many interviews. People Magazine, USA Today, Newsweek have called me up and said, would you give an interview? And I always say, no, I won't. I'm sorry. It's not our business to discuss the people who come to our church, and we will not give any interviews. And we haven't. But if I ever were to give an interview on the events of the last year or so here in Washington, let me tell you what I'd say. What I would say is that I believe it seems to me the moral and ethical bar has been lowered, lowered so far in our nation today that lots of Americans have even forgotten there is a bar anymore. Well, we've lost sight that there even is a bar to try to live up to. And one of the things that this means is that we've got some very tragic uh, problems in our nation, but I also see this as a wonderful opportunity, a wonderful opportunity for us as Christians to go out and make an impact on our world for Jesus Christ. Because, friends, it means that by going out and by living with the bar high in our lives, by going out and living as people of honor in our world, 
we can make an impact on a world where the bar has just about disappeared. That's what this has all been about the last year. It's about some people in our world, thank God, saying there still ought to be a bar in this country that we live up to with ethics and morals and decency. And other people saying, doesn't matter. God says it does matter. And God says He wants us as His people to reflect the fact it does matter. Honor does count. It is important. And if we go out and live this way, I believe, people will look at us and go, why are you doing this? Why are you quitting? Why didn't you just forge the document? I mean, you got a good paying job here. Why are you quitting? Well, and we need to answer that question. Say, because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. That's why. And Jesus calls me to live with honor. And that's more important than a job. And keep that bar up. That's what Peter said, 1 Peter chapter 2. Live such good lives among your unbelieving friends, Peter says, that they will see your honorable behavior and they will believe and give credit to God. And so my challenge to you, my friend, is in your everyday decisions where honor is the issue, integrity, duty, loyalty, being true to your word, in those everyday decisions as a follower of Jesus Christ, be a person of honor. Be Uriah. And if you live a little shorter, or you're employed a little bit less, or your grade point average is a little bit lower, you know what? In the grand scheme of things, it's not going to make all that much difference. But don't prostitute your honor. Don't prostitute your integrity. Just to get somewhere. Friends, God will get you and me everywhere we need to get to. And we don't have to compromise our honor to make it happen. May God help us go out and live like those kind of people. Not only so we can be under the honor of God ourselves, but so that we can make an impact on our world. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord Jesus, thank you for talking to us about stuff that's right down where we live. As I said, every one of us has to make decisions every day. Many of them. Where the central issue is honor. And Lord, you know how tempting it is. For us to fudge. You know how, how easy it is for us to rationalize. Chopping off the edges a little bit. I do it. We all do it. But God, I pray you would use Uriah's example today. To motivate us. To challenge us. Not to drop the bar in our lives. But to keep it up where it belongs. And to do the very best we know how with the help of your spirit. To live as people of honor in this world. Thanks for reminding us, Lord, every account's not getting settled down here. And anything we lose down here because of living as a person of honor, you're going to righteously make sure we get it back in spades on the other side. So take that fear away from us, God. And send us out to make an impact on our world, one life at a time, as we do as Peter said as we live good lives among our unbelieving friends so they can see our honorable behavior and hopefully come to a decision point for Jesus Christ in their lives. Lord, change the way we live every day because we were here this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.